Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, and I am really uh, glad to have a conversation today with a woman who is one of my heroes and has been for a long time, uh, Kay Warren. She and her husband, Rick, uh, trekked out to California, I don't know how many years ago, uh, a while back. Next year, will be 40. 40, wow, and planted a <laughs> we saddleback. We were babies. <laughs> it planted Saddleback Church there. And of course, uh, you are familiar with uh, Kay's work uh, ever since then. In so many different uh, arenas. She's written books. She has uh, she has worked on behalf of uh, people with HIV and AIDS uh, around the world. She's worked a lot in an area where I first uh, came to know her in the areas of uh, orphan care and adoption and foster care uh, and so forth. And that was one of the things, and Kay, I I think about this all the time, and I think about it just about every time I think about evangelism, was a time that you and I were together with a group of people who were working in child welfare, but none of them were Christians uh, at that point. And the way that you loved people, represented Christ— People were asking you questions in the way that you answered those. It was just really an inspiration to me uh, when it comes yeah, to sharing sharing the gospel. So thanks for being with us today. I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Me too. Uh, well, you've been working a lot over the past uh, several years in areas of uh, mental illness. Uh, you're on the board of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, there could be 15 things we could we could easily talk about today, but I have a lot of people who are asking me uh, these days about questions of mental illness, uh, questions specifically about mental health in the church, and a lot of questions about suicide. When we look at the increasing uh, suicide rate and you have people who are who are thinking through how can churches deal with this issue better, not only for those who are uh, who are grappling with depression and, and other forms of, of mental illness, but also for families uh, who are surviving and living through trauma and so forth. And so you and Rick, of course, went through uh, an awful time in your own family uh, several years ago with the loss of your son, Matthew. Uh, what did you learn out of that experience? Mm-hmm. Well, hours and hours and hours worth of um, things that, that we learned. I I couldn't have told you ahead of time how completely shattering 
Um, mm. It would be to lose a child to, mm. to suicide. I mean, we dreaded that day because Matthew lived with serious mental illness for about 20 years. He was seven when he was diagnosed with depression and he died at 27. So he had 20 years of very serious mental illness, increasingly serious as each year went by. Um, he lived with multiple different diagnoses from obsessive compulsive disorder to borderline personality disorder to bipolar disorder, um, panic disorder, uh, major depression. I mean, he just, he just, at the bottom line is he was just so ill and he mm -hmm. suffered so much. He was 12 when I first heard him talk about um, wanting to die. Mm -hmm. I've, I've looked at some of his writings from elementary school since he passed away, and some of that evidence was there, but somehow we didn't see it. Teachers didn't bring it to our attention. I don't know. But somewhere around 11 or 12 is when he began to think about um, ending his life. And he lived another 15 years past mm -hmm. that. So the last few years of his life, um, I, I wrote an, an article of, of a couple of years ago because people, mothers were asking me, how do you deal with the fact that you have a very seriously mentally ill child and they might die? And I wrote an article that I called Living on the Edge of Hell. Mm. And that is exactly what it was like to know that any day mm. could be the day that that he would take his life. And so while I was prepared in the sense of it wasn't a shock to think that Matthew might um, kill himself. We were working, twisting ourselves into pretzels to keep him alive, to keep getting him care. But even so, the day that he died, I wasn't prepared mm. for how completely shattering it would be to lose him in that way. And um, there was a period of time after that, that I could honestly say, I didn't doubt God's existence. Mm -hmm. But I doubted God's goodness mm. and his kindness. Um, it's very difficult to watch a child suffer mm -hmm. their entire life with um, mental illness. And it got to the place that he himself could not resolve within himself that God would allow that for him. Mm. And was part of the, uh, I think, precipitating um, events for his eventual death. And so to find faith for ourselves that really was um, true, that mm. wasn't just based on, oh, you know, we're in ministry, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we're, we've been in ministry our whole lives. This is what we do. This is, you know, this is just what we, this is what we know. But to move it beyond that to the really being convinced in the deepest part of ourselves that God is good. God can be trusted. Mm. Um, Matthew's death certainly shook that yeah. for a bit. And um, so I think what I've come, I didn't know how hard it would actually be. I didn't know how difficult the grief work. I did not know that grief was going to be the hardest work I had ever done. Mm. And I'm still doing every single day. I didn't know that I would find the goodness of God in our darkest moment on the worst day of our lives. Mm. I couldn't have really told you um, ahead of time that I would end up being a very hopeful person, mm -hmm. even though Matthew um, has died. Um, I don't think I would have understood 
how intimate and close I could be with God Mm. in spite of the fact that he did not answer my heart's cry Mm. for healing from Matthew here. Mm. Those are just not things I would have known or could have predicted. Um, but they are all very real and they are very true. But it, none of it has come easily. Well, you mentioned about being sort of in ministry and going through that trauma and dark night of the soul and everything that comes with it. How did that make it, I would assume, a lot more complicated because you're having to simultaneously minister to people who are accustomed to you being the one, both of you are the ones who are kind of pouring yourselves out for other people, and you are having to be ministered to uh, at that time. I I think there are probably a lot of people who are in that situation with a whole variety of of different different, uh, traumas and crises that they have in their lives. What were things that that people did that, that you would say, this is this is the way you should treat somebody who's going through a very difficult time? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because that, that is a critical question. Uh, we Our experience was in some ways different than that of many who are in ministry, are in leadership, in that we, um, Saddleback is just an incredibly loving and accepting place. Mm-hmm. And so while there were some people who asked things like, well, how can a pastor's son, you know, if he didn't have purpose for his life, how can you stand up there and tell us we should have purpose for our lives? Mm. And some of those are honest questions and deserve answers. Some of them are actually cruel and unkind. Um, And you have to filter between the ones that are people genuinely asking, what does this mean for me if someone so visible and raised in the purpose-driven home, for Pete's sake, you know, if if you guys can't um, make it well, then how can the rest of us? And those are genuine questions, but then there were, you know, a few unkind, cruel things that were said as well. But because Matthew's death was um, on a CNN ticker tape mm-hmm. thing scrolling at the bottom of, of a newscast, it was public knowledge. We didn't have the option of keeping his death um, private or something that we could grieve, you know, on our own and then talk about it when we were ready. We were instantly in the spotlight. But by and large, we received so many, I mean, thousands of supportive messages and prayers um, that were a a great sustaining um, force for us. Others that I've talked to since then do have not had that luxury, and they've actually either had to suffer in silence mm-hmm. or with the shame and the stigma of of losing a loved one to to suicide. And I feel such pain and sorrow for them that their congregations have turned their backs on them or felt that they weren't fit for leadership mm-hmm. if they if their family experienced serious mental illness and um, if I had any message to give to anyone in a local congregation, it would be, Please take your pastor and and their family off of a pedestal. They are human beings, mm. um, and mental illness affects all of us as human beings. It is it is a human condition. One in five people in the United States will will experience a mental illness in the next year. Christian, non Christian, Buddhist, Muslim is you know w- whatever. Mm-hmm. It is a human problem, and. And to give your leadership the grace to be real people with real problems who need your support and your prayer and your kindness, mm. not your judgment or your um, or the shame that that you would 
you know, maybe inadvertently put on them. So we were in, in an atmosphere of acceptance that made it so much easier for us. We were given grace. We, we didn't go to church for four months after uh, Matthew died. We barely got out of bed, let mm-hmm. alone go to church and be, you know, the rah-rah cheerleaders for everybody else. We needed desperately to be ministered to, and our church gave us that that freedom to to be in that place of needing ministry. People brought us meals. People sent us cards. I think one of the hardest things is um, dealing with people who say, maybe with a good heart, but with a lot of ignorance, say things to you like, and I genuinely had this experience. I'm not making this up as an example. I had someone come up to me on the patio after a service and say, I know exactly how you feel. My dog died last week. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And you know, and part of you wants to just laugh, like, just like, seriously, did you just say that to me? Um, And part of you wants to be angry because it's just so unfathomable that someone could compare the loss of their dearly loved animal. And I loved my dog, mm-hmm. but losing my dog was not like having my son die by suicide. Right. And um, so just being really careful with those words of like, quote, I get it, quote, I understand when people stick the words, um, well, at least you had him for 27 mm. years. Mm. Anytime people stick the word at least in front of their their comfort, they you can already know they're going to minimize your pain. Yeah. They're going to minimize your suffering. To be careful of using that at least, because the reality is, I didn't just want Matthew for 27 years. I wanted him for his whole life. Yeah, I yeah. wanted I wanted to be the one that died first, the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm the parent. I wanted him to live his whole life. I didn't just want him for 27 years. And, um, and another thing that people ask is, uh, that very dreaded question of how are you? Mm. Let me tell you something. When you're in grief, that is one of the hardest questions to answer because you have to, you have to sit there and figure out now, do they just want the socially acceptable? Mm -hmm. Do they just want me to say, I'm okay. And, and I'm fine. And that way that person who's asked feels okay. And Mm -hmm. they can say, well, I asked and you know, everything's okay. And, you know, pat themselves on the back. Do they really want to know how I'm feeling? Can they handle how mm. I'm really feeling? And do you and, even um, know? Do you even doing? know? Yeah. Yeah. I, in this moment, I might be feeling this, but in two seconds, I might be feeling this way, completely mm. opposite. So that is a really hard question. And and so I've I've tried to learn other ways to get at that with grieving people. And so what I've learned to do, I, you can never go wrong, ever go wrong. You never go wrong by saying, I am so sorry for your loss. Mm-hmm. That, that lets people know you care, that you're hurting with them, but you're not putting them on the spot and asking them to, to unload on you, yeah. you know, what they're feeling or not feeling. It just expresses empathy and kindness Another thing that I've learned to just say is, um, especially if loss has been a while, is just to say, hey, I'm still praying for your family. Mm-hmm. Or you're in my mind and my heart. And again, it doesn't require an answer yeah. from the grieving person. So some of it is that's been helpful was just an attitude of kindness, meeting our practical needs, um, learning how to interact with us, even when they didn't know what to say, just a hug. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm praying for you, or you're on my mind and my heart. Those things have been helpful. 
and especially helpful has have been the people who the closest ones to us who chose to make our loss their loss mm. and they're in it over the long haul they're not going to just be the people who are around in the first you know few months they're they're people who are willing to be changed by grief in the way that we have what are some of the ways that that, that they indicate that that they're in it for the long haul. How, how did you they see don't, that? They've made it clear that as much as hard as it is, they're willing to accept the fact that we're different. We've yeah. changed. Yeah. You can't lose a child and not be different. Mm. Um, it changes you forever. Um, a part of you, a part of you dies mm. when you lose a child. And at least many people have Rick and I have felt that way, and I've had many other parents confirm that they have a similar feeling of a part of them was lost with their child. Mm. And the people that understand that you're changed and don't expect you to be who you used to be, mm. they're willing to let that person that you used to be go. Mm. And they're willing to let you be who you are now, who yeah. you're becoming as you grieve, as you rebuild your life, as you find, you walk through those hard places of God of that wrestling with him and mm. they're not frightened by it and mm. they don't push you away. They don't tell you you're a bad Christian or you don't have faith. Mm. If you, um, if you don't immediately quote snap out of it, mm -hmm. they don't tell you to move on. Yeah. They, they understand that this is the hardest work you've ever done, and it's going to take a long time. Mm. Those are the people that I will always be grateful for. Mm. One of the things that I, I'm sure you've seen, I've, I've seen it a lot with people who have gone through tremendous grief and, and loss, is that sometimes you will have marriages that will come apart after maybe a, a child has cancer or there's there's some other uh, loss. Mm -hmm. How would you counsel people when they've gone through uh, some sort of a, a traumatic issue or a loss, how to shore up their marriage and, and walk through it together rather than, than away from each other? Yeah, that's one of those scary but ultimately false statistics that's out there, that, that statistic that says like 50% or you know more of marriages will will break up following mm -hmm. the death of a child. Actually, the statistic isn't that high at all. It's, mm. it's more along the lines of, yes, there are marriages that do break up, but it's not a, a given or it's not yeah. like a crapshoot. It could go either way. The marriages that break up are, this kind of grief exposes the fault lines mm. that exist in your marriage. So the places that you had trouble before your child died, are going to move to the front burner uh, because of the stress mm -hmm. and the trauma and the loss and the grief. And so the places where you marriage was already weak or needed help, they're just going to be exacerbated in grief. So it's not like a perfectly, let's just say you've got a really strong marriage and then you lose a child and well, 50% chance you're going to, your mm -hmm. marriage is going to end. No, that, that just isn't true. It, but it is true that the stress and the trauma and the grief and the mourning will bring to the forefront the places where there already was difficulty. Mm. And so knowing that we, in fact, that's what used to scare me um, yeah. because Matthew was so ill and Rick and I didn't always agree on how to um, manage or handle his mental illness or what should we do in this particular situation. In fact, some of the greatest conflict in our 
years of marriage have been over how to manage Matthew's mental illness. And so I used to worry that that if we were having this much difficulty and he was alive, what if mm. he were to die, what would that do to our marriage? I wasn't worried that we would break up or divorce. Um, that's that's a that's a done deal. We're stuck with each other. <laughs> but it was the would it would it destroy the intimacy? Would mm. it affect our the intimacy of 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 our relationship? Would it make us distant strangers? And that used to scare me a lot because I just knew how hard it was with him alive. What would it be like if he were to die? And I can tell you honestly that Rick and I are closer now than than we've ever been. And what I tell other couples is losing a child rearranges everything, every relationship in your life with your family, with your friends and in your marriage. And if you can get to the place where you can see that and know that and determine that you're going to grieve together. Uh, Rick made, I mean, I loved him before, but I will never stop being grateful for the way that he has chosen to let me in Mm. to his heart. He has chosen to express his grief, to cry, to be angry, to be numb, and not to hide it from me or try to stuff it. And he hasn't tried to fix me. Uh. He hasn't tried to change me. He hasn't seen it as his responsibility to make me happy. We just made a practice of if one of us walked into the room and the other one was down or sad or angry or whatever, we didn't try to talk the other person out of that. We would just draw close. And if the other person felt like a hug, then it's like, just come and stand next to each other, arms around each other. Let the other person cry. Let the other person be angry. Mm. Let the other person be numb. And it wasn't just him doing that for me. It was he was willing to let me in to his heart and his grief. And that, I think, has made us now, six years later, stronger and closer, really, than we've ever been. But I really do put a lot of that on Rick's decision to share it with me. And that's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people, right? Because they, they think, well, I don't want to burden the other person yes. and make make yes. them. But uh, actually, you're saying it, it works the other way. That that was Well, key. and it's just, it's just so scriptural. It is the carrying each other's burden and believing that we don't go through grief. None of us get through grief well alone. And grief has a tendency to make us isolate and to feel like we're the only one that's ever felt the way we do. And to some degree, that's true. There's only one Matthew in the world. There's I'm his only mother. Mm -hmm. So nobody really knows but me what it was like to be his mother. And so in that sense, I have my own grief work that I do with the Lord and with my grief counselor and other people. But on the other hand, I can't do this by myself. And I need... I need Rick. I need not only his empathy and his compassion, but I need his arms around me and I need to cry with him and I need to laugh with him over a memory that is sweet. And he has chosen to enter in in that way um, with us together. And um, Mm. I'm just so grateful for that. You mentioned stigma. Uh, there are a lot of people in in ministry, I, I know, uh, who are either pastors or pastor's wives or maybe serve on staff or in some other way, but who don't want to talk about when they're grappling with uh, mental illness because they're afraid, well, people will conclude that I can't, you know, I can't handle ministry anymore 
in a way that wouldn't be right. the case if they're talking about physical uh, illness. And so exactly. uh, I know a lot of people that wouldn't even talk about the fact that they're grappling with, say, depression or uh, any number of other things. I wouldn't talk about um, taking medication, wouldn't talk about seeing a therapist, not just because those things, you know, nobody you know, there are all sorts of things we don't we don't talk to everybody about, but because specifically they think that that would that would lead to negative uh, implications for them. How do we get around that, uh, where we remove that sense of stigma uh, for people when it comes to these mental illness uh, concerns? Well, it's that's like my my mission in life mm-hmm. right now is Rick and I both feel passionate about uh, what whatever we can do to remove the stigma around mental illness. The body, we are whole beings. We are body, soul, and spirit. And the brain is an organ in the body the same way that the pancreas or the kidney or the heart. It, it is an organ in the body. Things can go wrong in any part of our bodies. And on top of that, we experience trauma as, as yeah. pastors, as clergy, as leaders, we experienced, we grew up, some of us grew up in some painful homes. Mm-hmm. There were some terrible things that happened to people in ministry when they were younger or even as they became adults. And that trauma affects our brains and affects our body. You know this so well, Dr. Moore. And, and so just to be able to treat each of us as a person, as a whole person, and not get caught up in some of the stuff that the church through the centuries has taught that it's, first of all, it's a sin to be sick, mm-hmm. which it's not. Right. And then secondly, that it's somehow a lack of faith to have a mental illness. It's not mm-hmm. to believe that, that people, it gets all the way into the messiness of, oh, well, that person has a demon. Well, no. Mm-hmm. Um, do demons exist? Yes. But mental illness and demons are not the same thing. And, and just to get our theology right, that yeah. God cares, God's made us as whole beings, not a sin to be sick, then to get our biology right of how the brain is a part of the body and to get a, a, a theology of the body. Um, there, there's so much that we can do to, to educate pastors. It's not taught very often in seminary unless mm-hmm. you're on a psychology track at yeah. a particular school. Um, and so we're, we're sending pastors and clergy out into deal with real life human beings who have real life illnesses and challenges and problems and they're unprepared. Yeah. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to refer people. They don't know how to recognize it. They don't, it's not like, well, sorry, I'm too busy trying to figure out what color to paint the church kitchen and how to get my balanced Sunday school, you know, lined Mm -hmm. up. I don't have time to think about mental illness. Listen, you deal with people every day. You are dealing with people who are affected by mental illness. So I think that education piece, how common it is, how real it is, and that it's treatable. um, Those are such powerful messages to make sure that church leaders know. Yeah, and I think if we could see some progress, if we were ever at the point where when a ministry leader stands up and says, hey, everybody, I want you to know I'm uh, going through some depression or some whatever the issue is, I'm seeing somebody right now. If the response was not, oh, no, what does this mean? Right. But, oh, good. Right. Yeah, he he, he yeah. or she's getting uh, getting some treatment for, for something. Getting I mean, help. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And not isolating 
um, my cousin's husband is uh, was a pastor and um, in Texas for many years, smaller churches, and uh, he was just one of those fabulous pastors who, you know, they just, he and his wife, they were at every, they just did all the, what you would do in a small church kind of thing. And yet when he began to experience some difficulties and some problems, there was no one that he felt he could turn to. Mm-hmm. And, and he eventually took his life a few mm-hmm. years ago. And mm-hmm. it just, to me, begs that question, you know, who pastors the pastor? Yeah. And, and when a congregation can respond, as you said, of, oh, I'm so glad you're getting help. I'm yeah. so glad. We love you. We're behind you. We're praying for you. It would do, um, man, it would take down some of that stigma and that shame that Satan loves to just heap on us yeah. as as you're already struggling. Now, let me add some guilt and some shame right. on exactly. top of this. Let's see if we can't just make this a little more toxic. Exactly. I was talking to somebody and said that I was going to be talking to you, somebody who had been through a difficult uh situation, a traumatic situation, not the same situation, but a traumatic situation Mm -hmm. from grief. And I said, uh, what would you ask her? And this person said, well, the main question that I would have is somebody who's not as far along down the line is, will I ever be okay again? What's the question? How would you, how would you speak to that person? Yes. Um, Life will never be the same, Mm. but it can be good again. Mm. I believe that with my whole heart. Jerry Sitzer says that in his book, A Grace Disguised, which is my favorite book on grief. And um, he said, when, he, when I read that in his book, just shortly after Matthew died, I, I can look back at my copy and I have question marks off to the side and the words, can this really be true? Mm. Because I knew that life would never be the same. I knew that. I could see that. But I wasn't sure that life could ever be good again. Mm. And and um, Jerry makes such a beautiful, convincing case of of how life can be good again. And I can tell you that life is good again. The way I describe life now when people ask that, how are you question? And I feel like they're doing more than just asking that perfunctory, you know, social greeting. I answer it this way. I am wonderful, terrible. Mm. I'm doing wonderful, terrible. There is so much in my life that is good, that is wonderful, that is beautiful. I'm so grateful. Sometimes I feel like the most blessed person on the planet. And at the same time, there is this terrible gaping hole Mm. that nothing and no one will ever be able to fill until I see Matthew again when I see Jesus face to face. Mm. So how am I? I am wonderful, terrible. Mm. And I will live with tears in my eyes until I see Jesus and Matthew again. But absolutely, life is good. Life mm. is good. Amen. Amen. Well, Kay, you and Rick are, we love y'all and are uh, heroes uh, to us. And so thankful not only uh, not only for your ministry, but also for the way that you are equipping all kinds of people who, who maybe never before had someone to turn to in a time like this. So thanks so much for having this time of conversation with us today. I appreciate you tackling this. It's, it's hard, you know, it's a hard subject. So thank you for being so compassionate and so kind. And you've been listening to us today on Signpost. This is Russell Moore.